So how does he believe it if he says the? I'll go back and read the question. That's where I'm confused. No, no, that's where I was confused. If he says that the data doesn't show that, then how does he actually believe it? I know. I know. I get it. This is chapter two. The scientific questions addressed here. <laughs> no, I know, but okay? I'm asking you what your opinion after I, reading I, this. I know. I don't. I can't explain it. He talks out of both sides of his mouth like 20 times in this book. And oh, the book's okay, only 100 okay. pages long. Oh, no, I just wanted to make sure I wasn't confused. Okay, so that's basically how he is, right? He fl- He's like Trump. Yeah. He flip-flops back and forth. Yeah. <laughs> all right all right well now that makes sense to me because i was sitting here going with all this stuff this guy has written how is he believing it maybe he just says he believes in it to give himself credibility in that to hopefully get other scientists to read this who believe in it and then go wait a second the data yep. proves that it's not true maybe he just says that as a way to get his foot in the door well, and then there's another, at the, the, uh, the bottom of page 73, it says, perhaps surprisingly, since 1900, U.S. heat wave magnitude is down. What do we hear every freaking summer on the news? Yeah. Oh, record days over 90, hottest year since whenever. It's climate change. It's human-caused climate change. There's no science to back it up. None. No. It's called the Weather Channel. That's what it's called. Flip over to 74. You got three graphs. Trends for cold spells, warm spells, and heat waves in the United States since 1900. Folks, for those that are on the radio only, the lines are going down. Mm -hmm. So 1900 had more cold spells, more warm spells, and more heat waves. (laughs) Wow. Okay, so page 75. Yet such overwhelming evidence is no match for those wishing to tell a different story. For instance, a New York Times article on the release of the 2017 National Climate Assessment mischaracterized what the report concluded. Quote, this is from the article, In the United States, the report finds that every part of the country has been touched by warming from droughts in the southeast to flooding in the Midwest, end quote. In the article, Pennsylvania State University professor Michael E. Mann also mischaracterized what the report actually said. Quote, whether we're talking about unprecedented heat waves, increasingly destructive hurricanes, epic drought, and inundation of our coastal cities, the impacts of climate change are no longer subtle. They are upon us. That's the consensus of our best scientists as laid bare in this latest report. (laughs) This is coming from a Pennsylvania State University professor that I guarantee you this was quoted all over the media. And And then the author of the book simply says in the next sentence, the report simply does not say what the New York Times and, and Professor Mann says that it says. In other words, here's yet another example of pathological business as usual on the science of climate and extreme weather events. They lie, they spin. Yeah, hey, let me ask you one more question, just to clarify this for myself here. When you start off reading his book, right, Mm -hmm. what does he actually, like, what does he say he's trying to prove here? Like, what's his thesis? That... Climate change is real, but there's a lot of hucksters out there. Like, what is his what is his message? I'm trying to find it here. 
I wrote this short volume in 2014 for those interested in understanding the science of disasters and climate change. Four years later, the need for such a book is as great as ever. In the second edition, I've updated the data and the analysis while also reporting on my own experiences in the debate over climate change during this period. So he's basically just trying to set the science straight. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, this is interesting because in chapter six, it's called What About Climate Policy and Politics? Yeah, well, and I, re and I remember in the beginning, uh, last episode or the one before, you had read the, the list that you had just pulled up. And he says in there that he supports a carbon credit system and more extreme measures than that. Um, he doesn't necessarily support carbon credit system, um, but he does believe in coercing people. We talked about that. Where He mentioned that, uh, you know, the, the purpose of a debate is to not convince the other person to think like you. Yeah. Um, but then he goes on to say, well, if people don't don't wake up and do what they need to do, then we have to force them to do it. That's what I'm saying. I don't understand. It seems like this book discredits the entire uh, climate hoax. Yeah. So the beginning of chapter six says, so what? It is a question that my students get tired of hearing. So what if the science of disasters and climate change is exaggerated by public debates and by some scientists? As one client scientist observed to me after Hurricane Katrina ravaged the Gulf Coast, if people think that today's disasters are caused by or linked to human-caused climate change, isn't that a good thing if it motivates them to support, uh, motiv if it motivates the support for the right policies? Mm. So they're right, we're wrong. Mm -hmm. That's what that says. Yeah, the right? ends justify the means, yeah. Yep. Um, let's see here. I don't think I sent these to you, but two pages later, he says the goal of political debate, of course, should not be to get everyone to think alike, but to paraphrase the writer Walter Lippmann to get people to who think differently to act alike. Mm -hmm. You don't have you don't have that. That's the no. not one vote technocracy crap, people. Yes, and that's also the same thing that you covered in, uh, I think, in Green Swan, where they yep. talked about basically if fifty percent of the people believe whatever you're trying to make them believe, and then mm -hmm. out of the remaining fifty percent, let's say, uh, you know, uh, you know, another eighty percent of those just are willing to go along with it. Who cares if they really believe it? They're engineered into actually playing along. It's just like COVID land. Like we've brought that up as an example. You know, half the people wear masks because they think it protects them, and then half yeah. of the remaining half will wear them just because they don't want to get in fights with people. And then you know, there might be a few outliers that are the the ones who say, "Screw it, I'm not going to do it." But they don't care mm -hmm. as long as the vast majority will just go along. They don't give a crap if you believe. <laughs> it or not yeah later on he writes about the only equation needed you need to know to understand efforts to stabilize the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere requires a basic understanding of where carbon dioxide comes from 1980s uh japanese scientist yoichi kaya okay kaya explains that the future carbon dioxide emissions would be the product of four factors population economic activity how we obtain our energy, and how we use that energy. Period. Mm -hmm. So I write, oh, it only comes from humans. What about volcanoes? What about methane gas being released, released from the ocean? 
Yeah, that page. What about mm. decaying nature? Because the documentary, uh, the great global warming uh, swindle, you have all kinds of scientists that worked with the IPCC telling you that the volcanoes alone annually emit 10 times more CO2 into the atmosphere than all human activity combined. And the wow. oceans are more than volcanoes. Well, they found one scientist in the whole world, in Japan, that says, nope, it's just humans. And that's <laughs> what they go with. <laughs> hey, how much will I get paid if I say I'm a scientist and I'll go along with him? <laughs> so that way they can have two. <laughs> yeah, the Federal Reserve will issue that, uh, that, that study grant. Oh, okay, good, good. I'll say we'll give him a call after the show. <laughs> yeah. This is wild stuff, people. I mean, the fascinating thing about that book is that it's, it pointed out that the IPCC knows damn well that none of this climate stuff is increased in both frequency or intensity, and they also know damn well it, it, any of that, it's not caused by humans. Mm -hmm. yeah straight from their own words yeah no no i mean that that's amazing stuff so now with um so with the the second book that you reviewed what was this one focused on this is the earth brokers so these are the guys that are environmental activists and went to rio in 1992 thinking they were going to be with their peeps and they came away and go wait this is one big giant resource grab for the elites and they're going to steal everything <laughs> and make the make the inequality worse yeah that oh, book. okay so this, this is similar to that book i've not similar, but I mean, along the same lines of that guy who wrote the book, um, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, where he, he literally yeah. thought he was going to do good things and then realized yeah. he was in the middle of like a giant international monetary fund hustle where they were basically just going in and terrorizing these countries and stealing everything from them and locking yep. them into debt traps and everything else. Yep. So we're going to read uh, the introduction for this. It's only 10 pages. All right, Jim. So this is the uh, page you said this is comes from before the introduction when you first open up the book. Yeah. So let's take yeah, a look this at this. It's just like a one-page summary. So the Earth Brokers, um, and I'm not going to say quote and end quote here, people. This is straight out of the book. I'm just reading. After decades of failed development plans for the South, the Earth Summit was built as a dramatic new approach to solving the planet's problems. Instead, the Earth Summit attempted to green development and its major promoters by pushing the environment to the top of the agenda. UN and government agencies adopted this new green solution without questioning. This was written in 1994. Okay, and think about it in terms of all the documents that have come out since. So we know a lot. As a result, the new world order that is emerging after the Rio de Janeiro conference is identical to the old one. If this new order were merely a warmed-over version of the old, things might be expected to continue deteriorating at the current pace, if not accelerate, since the new mantra is that the environment may, be, may even be a profitable enterprise that will stimulate development. What is more, the new order is slowly creating a global management elite that is co-opting the strongest people's movement, uh, movements. They're the very movements that brought the crisis to the public attention. So that's the natural economy that we'll see in a bunch of BIS documents. This These is great, though. In 1994. 
This is great because you said this is from 94. Uh, Anthony Sutton's book that I told the audience about that we're going to review, the one you said to review on the Federal Reserve, that was published in 95. And then the paper I've been re- reviewing, Industrial Society, its future was 95. So there was a lot of people trying to warn about the coming technocracy uh, and all yeah. of the uh, hijacking of the natural world back in uh, the mid-90s. Yep, they just didn't have a voice. Well, they did. It's just people didn't listen. <laughs> that too. So the introduction start in New York in December 1989. The member states of the United Nations agreed on agreed on Resolution 44-228, the 228th decision in its 44th General Assembly. The resolution noted with concern that the world's environment was deteriorating rapidly and recommended that the U.N. General Assembly convene a conference of national leaders at the highest level to save the planet from catastrophe. Officially, this was to be called the United Nations Conference on Environmental and Development, UNSAID for short. Unofficially, it was dubbed the Earth Summit by the man who was chosen to put it together, Maurice Strong, a Canadian businessman and diplomat. I'm going to stop right there because... (laughs) These authors apparently did not know who Maurice Strong was. Um, But if you go watch James Corbett's documentaries, How Big Oil Conquered the World and Why Big Oil Conquered the World, Maurice Strong was a Rockefeller general. He ran several of their Canadian oil companies. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Yep. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, and I think Corbett's, uh, that documentary mentioned, that's on um, YouTube, I think, for free, folks. Yep. Yep. I have the DVD version. Ah, oh, okay. All right, good. <laughs> it can't get deleted. <laughs> so, right. people, who is in charge of running the very first United Nations Summit on Climate? Rockefeller. Yes. Isn't that interesting? Okay. There's a banker behind, there's a banker behind every curtain. <laughs> Yep, we continue. Six months later, the first of four major preparatory meetings, uh, committee meetings, uh, the meetings were called PrepComs 1-4, to to thrash out conventions and agreements for the leaders to sign at the summit was held in Nairobi. A member of a non-governmental organization or NGO attending, it sent out a memo by computer to hundreds of other NGOs following the talks describing his own reaction to the name Earth Summit. To him... He said, it conjured up the image of a steep mountain with the heads of state gathered at the summit from where the planet would be saved. (laughs) The people of the planet were waiting below for the agreements to be signed at the top and brought down to them. In between them and the leaders, bearers toiled, carrying proposals up the mountain. (laughs) The heroes are coming to rescue the serfs. The the bankers... The bankers are Moses <laughs> coming down the mountain with the tablets, ladies and gentlemen, to rescue you. <laughs> this is hilarious. <laughs> okay, we go on to page two. After the meetings and the lobbying were finished, the two of us, the authors here, sat down to review what had been achieved over the course of almost two years. This was about two months before the Earth Summit itself was held in Rio de Janeiro in 1992. We concluded 
that as a result of the whole unsaid process, the planet was going to be worse off, not better. <laughs> because unsaid occurred at a crucial moment in the environmental and development history, this book also helps readers understand the transformation of development and the recent quite profound changes in North-South relations, as well as the deep changes the Green Movement has undergone. Mm. Throughout this book, we show how Unsaid has promoted business and industry, re rehabilitated nation-states as relevant agents, and eroded the Green Movement. We see how, as a result of Unsaid, the rich will get richer, the poor will poorer, while more and more the planet is destroyed in the process. PPP. <laughs> <laughs> oh man this is great yeah this yep, is uh, this is much better than the evening news yes so they continue marxists have criticized industrial development since, since its social effects started to be felt in the late 19th century they criticized it on the grounds that it produces injustices enhances unequal power structures and it, it exploits people Excuse me. However, Marxists have never questioned the underlying idea that industrial development will free society from the constraints of nature and thus ultimately liberate people altogether. The main obstacle that prevented this process from happening was not to be found in the development process itself, Marxists argued, but rather in the political power structures which were perpetuating inequities and oppression. Mm. And I write... A brilliant disguise. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And you can find some of the most prominent Marxists out there with the uh, banker money behind them as well. So, <laughs> yep, they fund all sides, uh, folks. All sides. They, they do. Yep. Even after the Second World War, techno-scientific industrial development remained an unquestioned tool, even for the most vocal critics of modern society. That's technocracy. Mm -hmm. In an effort, uh, in an effort of collective denial promoted by the massive public relations campaign, further industrial development was declared in the aftermath of the Second World War to be also the means of bringing about peace among nations. As a result, the United Nations was set up with the mission to promote, quote, peace through development, end quote. No longer was industrial development simply going to lead to a modern and rational society. It was also going to bring peace to the world. With the United Nations promoting it, industrial development progressed exponentially, exponentially and became uh, and planet-wide. What is more, the aggressive reconstruction of Western Europe became the model for the industrialization of the entire world. Development was now clearly the goal, and the development process of the North spearheaded by the usa was to be replaced replicated by the south the rare humanists who feared that the human side would get lost in the process were silenced as the cultural subsystem was singled out and declared to be the realm of truly human aspirations thus culture became a luxury that was made possible by continuous industrial development my note to that par that paragraph was is one giant Rockefeller grift. And the other thing, Jim, is this is funny because this paragraph fits right in line with that International Monetary Fund timeline I 
read to the audience right off yep. their website that they're like, oh, World War II happened and all these places were destroyed. And then we showed up with bags of cash <laughs> and told everyone, we will build up your societies for you. Like it was like <laughs> they were ready to go. Yep. So under the Cold War, they write, the Cold War became one of the driving forces of industrial development because it stimulated scientific and technological progress on the one hand and promoted military industrial uh, induced industrial production on the other. Second, the Cold War cemented the nation state system and thus reinforced the idea that nation states were the most relevant units within the problem within which problems had to be addressed. Mm -hmm. Excuse me, let me get a drink of water. And uh, what uh, I just want to bring that up. It's important because also the the uh, Cold War was on the IMF timeline as well. One of their big uh, big yep. events where they were able to come in and start developing uh, countries. But the other thing that's interesting is if you look at uh, some of the World Economic Forum stuff as well as some of the BIS documents. I'm sure you're coming across it. One of the things that they're starting to say is. Um, and especially in a lot of the WEF propaganda, that this next uh, decade is going to lead to the rise in sort of uh, sovereign nation states coming back. And all I see them actually doing is they're going to use that as the beginning of locking down areas to create quadrants, sort of like 15-minute cities and smart cities. They're going to be locked down countries. I, I mean, I personally believe five six years from now you may not be able to travel internationally short of having definitely a digital id or a digital passport like that seems to be something that they're going to do because i know the globalists who work so hard to create a centralized global system of government aren't going to return sovereign power to the nation states like that is not going to happen <laughs> that is not no. the goal it's more centralization okay, always under the guise of decentralization. Yep. The last part of the Cold War here, they write, industrial development came to be seen as a means to enhance national power, thus hiding the fact that the means had overtaken the end. Mm-hmm. Third world development. The development paradigm was further strengthened by the political independence of many third world countries. Indeed, this is quoting... Uh, some document. <laughs> Truman had launched the idea of development in, in order to provide a comforting vision of a world order where the U.S. would naturally rank first. The rising influence of the Soviet Union, the first country which had industrialized outside of capitalism, forced Truman to come up with a vision that would engage the loyalty of the decolonizing countries in order to sustain his struggled, struggle against communism. For over 40 years, development had been competition between political systems. Mm, wow, interesting. Wow. Yep. With the Cold War solidly established and entirely embedded in the post-war reconstruction of the Third World buildup, the development paradigm became institutionalized in the very structure and nature of Third World nation-states. Thus, these countries started to enter the industrial circuit by borrowing money and exporting raw materials mm -hmm. <laughs> where have we seen that before oh the debt trap was born exactly who were they borrowing from right not from me the, yeah, <laughs> me the nature of industrial development was not questioned until the late 60s 
Only then did social movement activism begin to raise serious doubts as to whether industrial development would really lead to the type of society promised by Truman and others. Mm. Okay. The move, social movements of the 1960s. In the North, the social movements of the late 1960s emerged. The main critique they voiced was the oppressive and technocratic tendencies of the development, i.e. the danger that the people, the human side, would get lost and forgotten. Wonder where that's, we've heard that before. Well, I'll tell you, that it's, it's such a mind, uh, a mind trip on all this stuff because you had Saul Alinsky known for rules for radicals who came out of this movement here and it was around in the 60s and Alinsky actually was against the idea of technocracy but he also was this like double talking snake that was driving people deeper into the hands of the bankers also it's they have so many like psychological operations and opposition that's running around it's it's fairly amazing like how they actually pull this off but yeah in my next life I'm so working we, for the bad guys by the way so <laughs> so we continue one must distinguish between the american version of so social movement activism and the european one if the american version is a product of the countercultural movement the european movement is a product of the new left both agree that the process of development has got out of human control and does not serve the majority of the people mm. the critique formulated by the new left in contrast is in essence, essence political. It is a critique of oppression, domination, and exploitation. Development in the South attracted criticism in the late 1960s and 1970s on the grounds that it was top-down, exploitative, exploitative, and oppressive. For all the radical critiques of Northern-centeredness and Northern-drivenness, development was being questioned in the South by only a very few people in the late 1960s and throughout the 70s. It was not until the advent of the Green Movement in the North in the 70s that a new argument was added to the critique of industrial development. Wow. And, and here's one of the things that's the mind trip, right? If you have, okay, so you have the uh, technical folks, like the technocracy, the idea is just a huge, giant, centralized, technological-driven, run, managed, governed, you know, country, essentially. And then when you have the folks on the left, like the new left, their idea is like pushing towards socialism, which, again, is just a giant governmental system that controls over the people. This is the thing with these. No one ever pushes the idea in any significant way of less government and returning government to local power. You never see that in any meaningful way come up, and it's really the only actual system that allows for more freedom, not less. Everything else is just big government, whether, whether it's run yep. by tyrannical folks or technology. It's all big government. Yep. and the so bankers are always green, in control of it the bankers are in control the green critique of development since the 1930s some scientists and engineers engineers have focused on natural resource conservation and environmental management starting with forestry and specific ecosystems gee i wonder what that is folks that's the rockefeller columbia university technocrat movement there you go in the 1930s <laughs> yep and as I've told, told the it, audience, uh, the hat tip to Maria Albanese, who, uh, when we were going back and forth 
couple months ago on this found Frank Vanderlip uh, basically noted for bringing the Jekyll Island crew together and creating the Federal Reserve Banking System was the one bringing Howard Scott, the founder of technocracy, around. And, And you'd say, why would the bankers support a guy who's pushing us towards energy certificates? Aren't they into money? No, they're into power and control. They don't give a crap what form the actual money is in as long as they control it. Look, they've openly said, if we control the money, we control nations and governments. Well, if the form of money is carbon credits, who creates the carbon credits? The banks. <laughs> right. It's the same That's, as running they're, a They're price. gonna control they have yeah. the same level of control. It doesn't matter yeah. what the system yeah, is. Yeah, they they're exactly they don't care if we're trading with seashells and pine cones no. as long as they control the beaches where the seashells uh, wash up and they control the forest where the pine cones are. They don't give a crap exactly. what form of government it is or what form of uh, actual money it is.